Well, here we are. We officially made it. Uh, 2020 is firmly in our rearview mirror, and here we are stepping into a new year, one we have all been waiting for, 2021. So happy new year to you, church. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather with you wherever you are and whomever you are with. I just want to restate our course of action here at Life Church. So January, February, March, we as the elder team, just looking at our circumstances, uh, Executive Order 72 from our governor's office, and just from the abundance of caution, we've uh, decided to continue in our community groups, not only because of those things I just mentioned, but also because of the stories we've continued to hear, the testimonies of what God's been doing in producing vibrant community and, and increasing a practical faith in people's lives. Uh, but we're also adding in and folding in some corporate gatherings. The first Sunday of every month, First Sundays is what we're calling it, a wonderful creative name. Uh, first Sunday of January, February, and March, we'll be gathering together for corporate worship. Obviously, we're not doing that today on January 3rd because of the rising numbers and everything else that we are experiencing. But we're looking forward to gathering with you. Worship and prayer nights, communications will be coming out about those. Uh, first Sunday in February and first Sunday in uh, March as well. So please, uh, we're just so grateful. We're so grateful that we can gather in this way. And we're grateful for you and your patience as we all navigate this season together. I also want to send out birthday greetings January 3rd. So it is Eli Manning's birthday. Happy birthday to you, former New York Giants quarterback. Uh, but more importantly, Bob Amon, father of Pastor Holly, former elder here at the church, close friend of ours. And, and finally, our eldest son, Tiny and I's oldest uh, firstborn, uh, Asa Fernbach is turning 15 today. And so we want to greet him and say happy birthday. Just embarrass him a little bit. Uh, so uh, again, happy birthday and happy new year to all of us as we step into this season. With this new season, uh, with this new year, we're beginning a new series. Over the next 14 weeks, we're going to join really a generations-long conversation with Jesus and his followers, creator, church, community, all in concert with one another. Throughout the scriptures, God teaches, God preaches, God proclaims. He, he speaks out of a burning bush. He speaks through a donkey. He speaks uh, from still small voices. And in the person of Jesus, he uses stories. He speaks in parables. The way of Jesus is specifically a parabolic way on purpose. God invests storytelling for a reason. Not only is it with the ancient and specifically Jewish tradition, yet another example of God using the context and culture that he is given. But the parabolic way is always inclusive. Uh, Eugene Peterson's book, Tell It Slant, the conversation on the language of Jesus and his stories and prayers, he speaks to this dynamic of the parabolic way. He says, is there a reason for this? I think there is, he writes. The parable is a form of speech that has a style all its own. It is a way of saying something that requires the imaginative participation of the listener. Inconspicuously, even surreptitiously, a parable involves the hearer. A parable is not ordinarily used to tell us something new, but to get us to notice something that we have overlooked although it's been right there before us for years. Or it is used to get us to take seriously something we have dismissed as unimportant because we've never seen the point of it. And before we know it, we are involved. God tells stories, not because he wishes to entertain us, 
but rather because he wants to involve us. The title of our series, our conversation over the next 14 weeks, bringing us all the way up to Easter Sunday, is stories. Because God doesn't wish to entertain us. He wants to involve us. Richard Carney says this, Telling stories is as basic to human beings as eating. More so, in fact, for while food makes us live, stories are what makes our lives worth living. Over the course of these weeks, we're going to cover a lot of chapters. Luke chapter 9 all the way through Luke chapter 19. Many stories. And as we meet in community groups, predominantly, again, with the first Sunday sprinkled in, within these community groups, we are afforded a greater opportunity to hear to read, uh, to prayerfully consider, to have conversations, thoughtful discussions, and be transformed to the full extent that we can engage. We can actually exercise the ancient Jewish tradition of Midrash, where you would put yourself into the parable, put yourself into the telling of Jesus, into what God is inviting us, and see your own self. See where you fit. See where you need to adjust and be shaped and be corrected and encouraged to be as God intended you to be. There are lots of things we're missing in this season. Over these last 9, 10, 11 months, gathering together, the corporate settings. But there's so much we engage in as we gather in homes, as we gather in places within these community groups and have these conversations. Uh, to be honest, engagement is easier in these environments in which we find ourselves. You can hide in a group of 200, 300. You can hide in a group of 40 or 50. But you have to allow yourself to be known when you walk into a community group. And you get to then know others as well. And I would suggest that we all get to be known by God in this environment as well. So as we engage these scriptures... As we say from time to time here at Life Church, don't just read the scriptures yourselves, but let the scriptures read you. And so we have already sent out a reading schedule. So you know all the messages, all the conversations that we're going to be having over these 14 weeks. And you can go ahead and read those scriptures as well. We're looking forward to engaging God's presence in this way with all of you. And as we do so, I want to exhort you, allow a God imagination, conversations with community, prayers of people who are actually with you. Let these dynamics inform you. Let them instruct you. Let them inspire you. God does not wish to entertain us. He wants to involve us. I'm currently reading another book, Reformation, Seeing God, People, and Mission Through Reenchanted Frames by Alan Hirschen. Mark Nelson, and they write this. All human beings are formed through narrative. Human beings live inside stories. Stories are how we communicate with each other, how we connect with each other. They are how we learn, how we think. The stories we consume shape so much of who we are, what we do, how we act, and what we believe. Stories are not simply a way to communicate. They live in and around us in a way that allows us as humans to advance. As philosopher Alistair McIntyre points out in his classic After Virtue, I can answer the question, what am I to do? Only if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part. Story is a vital part of the frame. They continue. 
Ultimately, stories like these enable us to ask, if I entered this story, who would I be? In the same way, when we tell the story of Jesus with similarly rich metaphors, it provokes questions and thoughts such as, how would my life change if I lived in a world where it was truly better to give than receive? What would it be like to live in a world where the first shall be last and the last shall be first? If I really did believe that God had power over death, would that alter the way that I lived? What would it be like to live in a world where death didn't have the final word? We'll be working through Luke's Gospels. You'll find these parables, some of them in some of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. But in Luke chapters 9 through 19, this section of Scripture is commonly referred to as the travel narrative. We see Jesus leaving Galilee, and through the next 10 chapters, he's making his way to Jerusalem. Of course, the crux of all of this is all of us. We do not suppose that those of us who are preaching or communicating from this side of the screen are here to give the answers. We are as much involved in the conversation as you are. The crux of all of this is not us giving you the truth and how to think, but all of us entering together into this process of thinking and imagining and praying into what God desires us to be. These community groups offer opportunities, again, for us to prayerfully consider and and have conversations to allow ourselves to be known and to know others as well. Please, we would encourage you, the reading schedule, uh, get on board with that. Work through it together. If you haven't gotten into a community group or if you haven't received that reading schedule, check your spam box. Everything gets thrown to spam. But if you need help, please email us at info at lifechurchvirginia.com. We will do everything we can to get you planted in a community group and get all that you can so you can journey with us in this season. So the first parable is in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? I love that Jesus answers a question with a question. And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, the scriptures note this, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from here comes the parable, church. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, the wounded man, he had compassion. He went to him bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus asks, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, please speak to me and through me. Listen through each of us that we may hear your word and respond according to your will. Mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. This parable is rich. There is depth and so much that we can pull out from it. I don't suppose that we are going to do all of that. And I would add and suggest that that's not what the parabolic form is, is about. It's not that we would be able to figure out every nuance, every detail, and, it, and, and find that singular truth. The parabolic form invites us in. This is why when the lawyer asks Jesus the question, Jesus doesn't answer it. He tells a story. He's inviting the lawyer and the crowd and all those who are with him into the moment. So first, before we do anything else, let's acknowledge the how Jesus is saying things before we get into the what things Jesus is saying. How versus what in general, I think is a really important conversation have in and of ourselves within our own filters called Holy Spirit, called our brains. You can say the right thing. Come on, somebody. Do I have any married people listening today? You can say 100% right something, but if you say it in the wrong way, if you say it with the wrong how, it doesn't matter what you say. Do I have any honest husbands and wives listening today? You can be absolutely perfectly right, but if your tone is provocative towards your children, the how will always crush the what. Now, I was a teacher for some years in the New Bernese Public School System and here in Williamsburg, James City County as well, and it didn't matter what I was saying if I wasn't addressing my students in an honorable way. As a human, I just want you to know, if you've never heard this before, your how will always crush your what. You can be absolutely perfectly in the right in terms of what you are saying. But if how you're doing it comes across as arrogant, rude, mean, I just want to submit to you, how always wins the day. And so Jesus' how, for me, is instructive, not just in this moment, but of course, here we are in Luke chapter 10. Jesus seems to not be in a hurry. Jesus usually answers in the conversation. Well, this lawyer shouts out a question and Jesus asks a question and then the lawyer asks another question and, and then Jesus tells a story. There's a give and a take. There is a conversational moment taking place. Jesus doesn't shut down questions. In fact, he opens up to them and he delves deeper asking follow-up questions himself. It seems to me that Jesus uses the language of honor. Jesus is very merciful with his words. He doesn't finger point. He doesn't name call. He's filled. And in one point in scriptures, it says that he's moved with compassion. Now, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus is not just some teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a really gifted individual. He is fully God. And so when a question is posed, Jesus could very much draw thick, bold lines of right 
and wrong. He could very well speak to the crowd, to the individual and say, don't do this or, or you must do that. And he admittedly speaks in very honest and authentic terms, in particular Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as he is working to fulfill the law, which are the words that he uses. He is, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is breaking down the Ten Commandments. So admittedly, he does speak in very stark terms. But he usually simply invites people in to conversations. His how is characterized by including as many as he can rather than correcting. Jesus is often marked by inclusion more than he is correction. Let me say that again as we who want to follow Jesus would be well served to note that. That Jesus himself communicates through inclusion more than he does correction. There's an interesting moment that I highlighted as I was reading it. When the lawyer asks the question, and it's unclear whether Jesus through the Spirit sees what's really going on or if everybody can tell. And you've been in a conversation where you're like, this person's not really asking this question. They're just wanting everybody to know that they know the answer. It says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? A couple of notes. Interesting that the lawyer's follow-up question does not have to do with loving God. He's not concerned with loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The contentious question encircles community. How are we supposed to love others? Who is my neighbor? I don't know about you, but so many times I hear people, hey, I love Jesus. I love God. It's the church I have a problem with. It's not God that I've got an issue with. It's all his jacked up people. It's not a new problem. It's not a new issue. The lawyer asks, seeking to justify himself, who is my neighbor? He is encircling the question of who is my neighbor? How do I love others? Second, Jesus, in the face of the lawyer, asking this justifying question, desiring to justify himself, Jesus chooses to not respond in kind. He doesn't go proclaiming. He doesn't go interpreting. He doesn't go finger pointing or justifying himself, but he engages in a conversation. He keeps that lawyer at the table, so to speak. He keeps everyone, and not only keeps everyone there, he includes everybody with this parable, with this story. Jesus comes across to me as respectful. He comes across as controlled, even thoughtful and kind. He's not confrontational. He's not condescending. He sure isn't argumentative. This has massive application in how we think, how we should treat others, and how we should act ourselves. And truth be told, to not be condescending, to not be argumentative, to not be confrontational, to all of those things that Jesus seems to move in so naturally, these are difficult for us because of the biblical truth that kind begets kind. Just like an elephant has an elephant, when someone's rude to you, you have a a kick in to be rude back. When someone is cutting to you, come on somebody, you have a desire, a thing in you to be that back. And so when this lawyer asks the question, choosing to, or, or trying to, do, to justify himself, who is my neighbor? 
The question really no longer is, what do I have to do for some person? But rather, who am I to be for all people? Jesus takes this parable and opens it up. I want to read another passage from this book by Eugene Peterson. He writes, Jesus' story, the the answer that Jesus gives, Jesus' story did not define the neighbor. It created a neighbor. Jesus' story puts a full stop for all time to all the variations on the question, who is my neighbor? From that time and right down to the present, the question is, will I be a neighbor? As Heinrich Grieven puts it, one cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. This man in Jesus' parable is beaten and left for dead. He's half dead, the scripture says. And then it says in verse 31, Now a priest goes by the road and goes on the other side. The priest would have been someone who was well-respected. The the priest had a relationship with God. The, The priest was employed by the temple, by the synagogue. He was religious to his core. The second one who sees him and goes on the other side is a Levite. Some Levites were priests, but not all priests were Levites. Levites were a specific tribe of the Jewish nation, and he would have been religious to his core as well. He would have known God, known the Torah, known the rules and the commandments, and been working hard to live them out. I would suggest to you that perhaps the main reason the priest and the Levite both passed on the other side was, in fact, because of the Torah. Because the law dictated if you were to come in contact with an unclean, if you were to come in contact with someone who may be dead, then you yourself become unclean and their religious duties would not have been able to have been met in the temple, in the synagogue, or wherever it was that they were going to minister. But then Jesus rolls in after the priest and Levi. He rolls in with a Samaritan. A Samaritan would have been someone who was very much looked down upon by all people, but specifically the Jewish people, the predominant people in the crowd that Jesus was speaking to. Jesus uses the Samaritan to come to the aid of the man because the Samaritan was less than. The Samaritan was a half-breed, a mongrel. And yet it's this man who didn't use the law to get out of what God's heart wants to do. But he stepped into the moment. We have to remember the context of the culture that Jesus is speaking to and using these three frames of humanity on purpose. I think Jesus, through his parable, unveils a great central theme of the kingdom, emphatically expressing God's heart. It's less about entrance for self. You see, the Levite and the priest were holy people. We give them, and we should, give them the benefit of the doubt that they knew God, had relationship with God. They were religious to their core. But being religious is not about entrance for self. Being religious means that you can now invest of yourself. To know God is not to get into heaven, but to know God is to bring heaven to where you are. Jesus closes out this interaction, this conversation, and he tells the story. And then he asks the question to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. He concludes the parable, the conversation 
with this guiding prospect. Go and do. Relationship with God is not something that sets us back on our heels and gives us entrance to a place then and there. But Jesus says relationship with God sets us to the forward and speaks over us, go, do. Allow me to launch you to your neighbors, in your family, your spouse, your children, your extended family members who you just spent maybe way too much time with over the holidays. Those who are listening to this around you right now, your neighbors, those who live nearby, those who live far away but you stay in touch with, those with whom you work, those people you see at Trader Joe's, at Walmart, sitting at Starbucks, waiting in doctor's offices, at the Verizon line when you choose not to look at your phone but you rather to be a normal human and look up and actually engage, dare I say even engage eye contact with another humanoid sitting close to you, wherever you are. Because that's where they are. Neighbors everywhere. With opportunity today, I want to first remind all of us that Jesus is our first neighbor. He's the lover of your soul. And here we are in the beginning of the new year, and we would be remiss to not give you opportunity to accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you are hearing me speak and something's resonated in your heart, we want to grab hold of the moment. It isn't just about one decision, but a decision of speaking it with your heart, believing it, speaking it with your mouth, believing it with your heart, as Romans declares, and, and entering into a relationship with Jesus, accepting him. It begins with you, and it begins with a small prayer of, Jesus, I give you my life. If you want to do that, you can do so in the community group. They'll pray with you, gather around you. If you'd like to reach out to me, info at lifechurchvirginia.com. We'd love to come alongside you. But just pray that prayer this morning. Jesus, I give you my life because he is your first neighbor. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The second opportunity is that I just want to encourage every one of us to consider the practice of communion this week. Gather with people. Break bread. Consider who Jesus is, what the cross has done in your life, what the cross has led you into for life. And let me leave you with this benediction. May we go and do. May we see the world Jesus tells us is here with neighbors everywhere. And may we have compassion, bind wounds, pour ourselves out, give of what we have. And so by our going and our doing, enter into eternal life here and now. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.